morning. If you guys got a Bible, go ahead, open up to Matthew chapter 6. That's where we're going to be looking this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you right now, there are some uh, paperback ones on those back tables when you walked in. You can go ahead, grab one of those. Uh, you can find our sermon passage this morning on page 900. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start reading today in verse 19. And this is what Jesus says. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye, he says, is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of light. Or healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See, the flowers of the field, they do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his splendor, He's not dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. All right, so in this passage, Jesus is talking about something that I think, regardless of what you believe here today, right? so whether you'd call yourself a Christian, not a Christian, I think it's something that we could all be in agreement is a bad thing. Greed. You know, after the 2008 financial crisis happened, some stories started coming out about some of the factors that led up to that, and one of them was just plain old greed. Right? People at the top were making unwise, risky, knowingly unethical financial decisions all so that they could just get more money. And as these stories started to kind of trickle out, average people. There was this focused anger from average people like you and me, all of us in here today, at what 
we saw to be just this incredibly selfish greed that now we're all reaping the benefits of. I mean, it just wasn't fair. I think that picture there is how we generally, probably all of us here today, probably generally how we think about greed, right? It's Scrooge McDuck. It's an issue for the 1%, for the CEO, for the high-powered, high-level corporate exec who, I mean, they don't care about the people below them. They're just trying to do whatever they can to fill their pockets with however much they can. And yet that caricature, it's not entirely accurate for a couple of reasons. First, big one, uh, there are plenty of godly Christian people at the highest financial levels of our country. But second, more importantly, Jesus in the Gospels, he talks to average people about money and the danger of money more than almost anything else. Jesus talks about money, the love and worry of it, more than faith, more than prayer, more even than sex. And yet, how often do we talk about money? I mean, when is the last time you heard of someone having an internet accountability filter on their credit card? Yeah, one of the things that I routinely like to ask people, just as a bridge-in to just kind of how you're doing spiritually, is just, hey, how's your prayer life right now? I can't think of a time that I've just unprompted as a way to just kind of gauge how you're doing spiritually, just said, hey, how are you doing with money right now? Jesus talks about money, specifically the love and worry of money, more than almost anything else, and yet, I think, if we're being honest, we talk about it comparatively little. And so there's two options as to why. All right, one, it's because we've solved it. You know, money, that was a thing back in ancient times. Today, we are much more enlightened. That's not nearly a problem for us at all. Or the second option is because we're blinded to it. And I think this passage is helping us see that it's the latter. You know, I think we would all say greed is a problem, but have we ever stopped for a moment and think that it could be our problem? And so in this passage, Jesus uh, points out three things uh, in, relation, in our relation to money. Right? So he shows us the problem of money, then he shows us the power of greed, and then lastly, he shows us the provision of grace. So first, let's look at the problem of money. You know, when we think of money today, uh, I think we kind of gravitate towards two extremes when we think about it. So on one side would be some of us who'd say money uh, is a good thing, that the free market economy that we live in today, that's our gift to the world. You're welcome. You know, the open economy, money, these are things that actually liberate us. And then some of us would be maybe gravitate towards the other extreme on the other, and that would say, no, it's actually the opposite. Money just creates problems. And when you look out at the injustice and inequality, even just right here in our context in Winter Park, you can trace it all the way back to money. That the more money you have, the worse person you become. And the Bible actually manages to kind of color outside the lines of that and side solely with neither of those. So in one sense, the Bible says money 
and the things it can buy are good things that are actually given to us as gifts by God for our enjoyment. So in other words, that means having, saving, spending money, none of those things are inherently wrong. That if you work in the financial planning industry, if you work in kind of the wealth management industry, those are good, godly careers. In fact, and don't hold me to this because I'm not entirely sold on it yet, but I think you can even make a case in the Bible that if a Christian becomes wealthy, that's a good thing. Because that means you have even more opportunity to give money away to bless and serve needy people and see your faith grow as other people are helped by the money God's given you. However, at the same time, all throughout the Bible, whether through story or just directly through teaching, we see that money and the things it can buy can, is one of the most common things to turn our hearts away from the love of God. Right? As the New Testament says, the love of money is the root of all different, a plethora of different types of evils. This is why Jesus talks about money more than anything else, because though it is a good gift for us to enjoy God through, it can also turn our hearts colder to God than faster than almost anything else. And so because there's this problem with money, that it's inherently a good thing, and yet it can also destroy us, Jesus gives us some wisdom here on how to use it. He says there's two ways that we can relate to money. The first is the foolish way. He says in verse 19, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal it. In other words, what he's saying is only a fool would store something that they thought incredibly valuable in a place where it was guaranteed to be ruined and stolen. In other words, what Jesus is saying is when we value money too much, when we see it not just as a way to enjoy God, to serve and bless other people, when we start to treasure it for the sense of security or the sense of status that we think it can get us, that becomes now a problem. Because at some point, you will lose your money. You know, it's as C.S. Lewis says, 100% of us die and that number shockingly has never gone down. Jesus is saying the foolish way of relating to money and the things it can buy is to value it not as a way to enjoy God, not as a way to bless and serve and see the flourishing of other people, but instead as a means to guarantee your sense of security in life, to get a sense of status. He says if that's how you relate to money, then your treasure will ultimately be lost at some point. The wise way, he says then, is in verse 20. He says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. See, what Jesus is saying is a wise person wouldn't store something they knew infinitely valuable to themselves. They wouldn't store it in a place that they knew was unsafe. They wouldn't place, no, instead, he says, they would put their treasure in a place where they knew no one and nothing had any chance of touching it. And so Jesus is saying here that the wise way then 
to relate to money and the things it can buy is to actually see it through the lens of God's kingdom. Not as a way to guarantee our security in life or to achieve a certain status, but instead as a way to enjoy God, to bless others. He says, if that's how you relate to money, then your real treasure can never be lost because at the end of the day, your treasure isn't the gift, it's ultimately the giver. So which path are you following? Do you sleep well at night because of the size of your bank account? Or because you know that through Christ you can never lose God's love for you? You Do you feel fulfilled at the end of the day because of the image you've been able to build? Or because through the gospel you've been clothed with Christ. When God looks at you, he sees his son, he smiles. Are you looking to money as a way to guarantee your sense of security in life, as a way to achieve this sense of status? In other words, are you storing up what ultimately is going to be lost forever? Or are you looking past all of that? Are you treasuring the giver and not the gift? That's the question Jesus throws at us. And so first we see the problem of money. Second then we see the power of greed. Jesus here in these next couple of verses, I think helps us uh, define greed in a much more thoughtful, kind of nuanced, helpful way, which is important because I think it helps us ultimately see the power of greed. So he says in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. What is he talking about? All right, he's using a couple metaphors and word pictures here that if we combine the two of those together, it can help us make sense of what he's talking about. Um, so in ancient times, the eye was a metaphor for the window into the inside of a person. So in other words, the, the metaphor kind of went through the eye, you could see into the heart. In other words, into the essence of who somebody was. Which Jesus here is saying If your eye or the inside of you is healthy, it'll be full of light and it'll be good. But if it's unhealthy, it'll be full of darkness and evil. And that word that's translated healthy in your Bibles, my Bibles, um, it's not talking necessarily about physical health here. It actually has a double meaning to it that's, um, it's hard to pick up on in the English. But in one sense, it's picking up on this ancient idea of wholeness of this single-minded devotion to God. But then in another sense, when it's used, this word, in the context of money, it specifically refers to generosity. And a lot of commentators on this passage think Jesus is combining both sense of the words here to kind of make this word play where essentially he's saying a singularly devoted heart to God is one that will ultimately be seen in its generosity. And the word then that's translated unhealthy, the unhealthy eye, most woodenly you could actually translate it as the evil eye, just another way of saying a divided heart. And when this word, especially in the Old Testament, is used in the context of money, it's referring to greed. So in other words, Jesus, the very poetic, perhaps in English a bit complicated way, is essentially saying this. A singularly devoted 
heart to God will ultimately show itself in its generosity. A divided heart that's trying to love God and something else will ultimately show itself in its greed. Meaning that greed isn't something that's based on how much money you have. It's ultimately a heart issue. Greed, as Jesus is defining it here in this passage, is a love of and worry about money. And I think that changes the way that, honestly, we oftentimes think about greed because here's what it means. Anyone can be greedy. doesn't matter if you have a little money or a lot of money. Anyone can be greedy because in the end, it's not solely about how much you have. It starts as a heart issue. You see, for some of us, it can look like this. It can look like tight-fisted saving of all of our money for ourselves. Now, here's what I mean. The Bible doesn't say there's anything wrong with having a rainy day fund, with having a 401k, with planning for the future, but for some of us, it's, it's gone way beyond that. Right? We save up every penny we possibly can. We, f- we feel this sense of guilt when we make this kind of Uh, in the moment, impulse buy. We get worried someday that we won't have enough money, and so what we do is we don't use any of it right now on ourselves, on anybody else. We keep it all for the future. In other words, we're not wisely saving up money. If we're being honest, we're just kind of hoarding it to ourselves. But some of us are maybe on the other side. We're like, I don't got a problem saving money. That's not my issue at all. No, I have no problem enjoying the gifts that God has created for us to enjoy here. In fact, I enjoy a lot of them. But when we do that, we're not legitimately spending money. We're just burning through it. And we find ourselves spending money on all of our money, on where we live, what we drive, how we look. Afraid that if we don't have a nice house, have a nice car, have nice clothes then we won't be able to stay in the social circle that we've managed to find ourselves in. This is the power of greed. That both the oversaver and the overspender, this is something you can do regardless of how much money you have because ultimately greed is a heart issue. And what Jesus is saying is that all of this is the result of not a singularly devoted heart to God, but a divided heart. And he's saying, we got to choose. Then in verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. So let me ask us this. Do you have money, or does money have you? That's the question Jesus wants us to think about right now. And if we're being honest, I think it's a question that today we need to be more concerned with even than in Jesus' day. You see, in Jesus' day, uh, the Greco-Roman society at that time was centered broadly. This is kind of an oversimplification, but it was centered around the family, meaning that you could break society up into roughly three large groups of people. You had the heads of household, then you had the women and children, and then you had servants who would kind of come into the family. Now, flash forward about a thousand years into the Middle Ages and Europe, and now we have a society that's not centered around family, but it's actually centered around war. 
right? This is feudal empires just kind of duking it out with each other all the time. And so now you can break society down into three different groups of people. You had priests, you had knights, and you had peasants. And that stayed roughly the same in Europe and Western culture uh, up until, there were some changes that happened, but up until right around the mid-1700s when the Enlightenment happened. And the Enlightenment, particularly in Britain, here in America, it remapped our society again. And this time, centered it on money. Gold hard cash. In other words, the economy became the central engine that everything we do is formed around. And we shifted from a society that was centered on war to one that was centered on production, bringing us to what we now live in today, where you can break up our society into three categories that are different now, upper, middle, and lower class. You see, in Jesus' day, how much you had and kind of where you stood in society, that, that was a thing, that was important, not at all like it is today in our culture that though we don't even realize it, it's just the water we swim in is centered in every way on money. The class you're in has become the thing, I would argue alongside race, that defines you from just other people's eyes. You know, this is why the author Tim Keller calls money the currency of self-worth. You feel that? And I think this explains then why some of us feel this need to save every penny we can, why we feel guilty sometimes when we make just kind of an in-the-moment buy, why we worry about not having enough in the future because ultimately our self-worth is on being a stable, secure, dependable person who will always be there to provide. And I also think it explains why some of us on the other end then spend every penny we can on where we live, what we drive, how we and our kids look, because for us, our self-worth is built around our status, on the image we build up, on impressing other people, the social circles we can find ourselves in. You see, ultimately, greed is a heart issue that if we're being honest today, just living in America in a culture that's focused on money, it's a heart issue that we have to deal with even more so than any other society in the history of the world, I'd say. So Jesus has shown us the problem of money, that it's a good thing, that money and the things that they can buy are, are good things, but at the same time, they have the power of turning our hearts away from God faster than almost anything else. And we've seen the power of greed, that it's ultimately a heart issue, meaning whether we have a little or a lot, any of us can be greedy. It's ultimately a love and worry about money, and that can something you can do regardless of how much is in your bank account. But lastly, what we need to see then is the provision of grace. You see, what Jesus shows us here is that God has provided us something that will cure the heart issue of greed that is coming at us every day. In this last part of the passage, Jesus speaks uh, really to the second part of what he sees greed being. Not just a love of money, but a, a love of money that leads to this worry about money. He says in verse 25, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, 
or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? And he unpacks what he's saying here now through giving us kind of two illustrations, two pictures of some things that you and I see every day. So first, birds. He says in verse 26, look at the birds of the air, just the wild birds out there. Uh, They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And what he's saying here isn't that it's wrong to save for the future. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's talking about here is this worry, this anxiety, that if I don't save every penny that I possibly can, then at some point later on in life, I will find myself in a sense of need, and God won't meet it for me. So in the second picture he shows us is of flowers. He says in verse 28, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yeah, I tell you, not even Solomon, a king in the Old Testament who was known for his riches, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. What Jesus is talking about here is is literally just wild field flowers, weeds, dandelions. And he's saying, just like God cares for the birds through their daily needs, in the same way that he feeds the birds, the same way he clothes the flowers in a way that makes them more beautiful than the richest king in the history of Israel. And then he says in verse 30, so, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And you see, in both of these illustrations, the birds and the flowers, Jesus is making this argument where he kind of goes from lesser to greater. And essentially what he's saying is this, all right, if God cares for as something as simple as pigeons and dandelions, then how much more do you think he will care and provide for something even more valuable to him? You. You know, when when Steve Jobs would do his product launches, he always had this one showstopper moment. This one carefully planned moment where in the most spectacular way that he could dream up, he would unveil his most prized creation. Kind of like in 1984 when he unveiled the Macintosh computer that was sitting on this table, lone table in front of everyone, with this black bag draped over it, and so Jobs comes out, and he kind of slowly pulls the bag off, and there's this computer there, and then he plugs it in, and then he takes a floppy disk, if you remember what one of those are, and he sticks it in, and suddenly, the computer talked! This is 1984. I wasn't born then, but if you were, you could probably tell me this, something like this had never even happened then. The crowd was mind-blown at it. And at creation, the Bible says, when God created the world, humans were his showstopper moment. You believe that? That's what Psalm 8 says, that God created us just like a little bit lower than the angels. And he crowned us with glory and honor. Have you ever felt like that? 
that we were his crown jewel of creation, that we were his pride and joy. That as you read in Genesis 1, he creates things and it's good. He creates things, it's good. Creates things, it's good. Gets humans, creates it, very good. We are the most treasured thing on all the earth. But even though we were God's showstopper moment in creation, we were his pride and joy We didn't believe we were. No, in the garden, our first parents, just like us, had hearts that were divided. They thought, God doesn't really treasure us. In fact, he's a little stingy and holding out on us and a tiny bit greedy. And so what they did instead was they sinned. They rebelled against him. They said, I'll take it on myself now to provide what I need. And that sin came at an infinitely high cost, infinitely high, one that we could never pay. Our only hope was that God would pay it for us. And that's what he does. Jesus Christ comes into our world and he lived the perfect, singularly devoted life to God. Jesus never stored up treasures on earth. When Satan brought him up, when he was tempting him to the top of the temple, said, I'll give you this and all the kingdoms of the world. If you will bow down and obey me, Jesus says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus never just lavishly spent money to give off appearances, but actually he said, no, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man, me, I have nowhere to lay my head. Jesus didn't save it all up to build this false sense of security but told his disciples, no, man doesn't live on bread alone but the very words of God. Jesus, in other words, he never served God in money. He lived a completely, completely devoted life to his heavenly father. This singular devotion that ultimately led him to the cross where God put his most treasured possession, his own son, in a place not where it would be merely eaten by moths and vermins, but where it would be pierced with nails and completely destroyed, all to pay the cost of my and your divided heart at the price of the singularly, perfectly devoted heart of his own son. Now, why would God do that? Doesn't that sound like the foolish thing to do? To put your treasure in a place where you knew it would be stolen, ruined, destroyed forever? Well, I'll tell you why. Because God says, you're his treasure too. Do you believe that? God says, I value you so much. Here's my investment strategy for the future of the world. I'm going all in on sinners with divided hearts. And I'm playing with house money. I'm betting everything on these people who don't and can never will perfectly love me back and I'm going to give everything. I'm going to give the blood of my own son because I'm the one doing it, not them. This thing can never collapse. It can never fail. It can never crash. So the cross is showing us this is how far I will go to provide for you. 
Because you see, what the cross shows us is that our greatest need in life isn't a raise, but forgiveness of sins. And the greatest provision that we could ever hope for isn't a better bonus at Christmas time, but it's the death and resurrection of Jesus, of Christ for us. Meaning that when you see, when you see God's perfect fatherly care for you, not just in pigeons and weeds, but for you and me in the cross and resurrection, that changes everything. That means now you will be able to trust him to meet your daily needs because you've seen him meet your greatest need. This is why Jesus says in verse 31, so don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear for the pagans? Run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. What Jesus is saying is paradigm shifting here. Don't miss this. Jesus is saying the mark, or sorry, a mark, that you are in God's kingdom is the degree to which you do or don't worry about money. Because the pagans who believed in gods who were moody, grumpy, stingy. He says the pagans are the ones who walk around murmuring all these anxious questions. Where are we going to find food? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? And Jesus says, in other words, if you, just like them, are living in this constant worry about money, then maybe you don't know my father. Because if you did, you'd know he's loving, caring, and generous beyond your wildest imagination. So generous, he gave you me. And so yeah, you, you might worry in the moment, absolutely. We're human. But he's saying you won't be consumed by this anxiety for money because we've experienced the greatest provision of grace in the cross of Christ. Jesus says when that sinks in, it's then and only then that you'll be able to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, that you'll be able to begin to live with this single devotion to God, that you'll be able to love him and not money and find in that a greater sense of joy than you ever thought possible. Let's pray. Father, I confess, far too often my heart is divided. Far too often I want to serve money over you. I want to latch onto it to give me this sense of security in life or to use it to build up this status. I confess that I worry about your provision. Jesus, thank you that you came to be the provision of God's grace in your cross and resurrection for us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would press God's word now deep into our hearts as we prepare to see it in holy communion. Amen.